Now, about a, a week or so ago, um, my three boys, who we collectively refer to as the Hall Boys, spent a bit of time playing cricket. And what I always say is, if the Hall Boys spend 15 minutes playing anything, but they were doing cricket, so we'll say cricket this time, then 10 of those will be spent arguing about the rules. Um, they'll spend a little bit of time playing, then there'll be some sort of disagreement about whether this is out or what they should be doing or who should be doing what. Um, and that takes up far more time than the actual uh, playing about it. Now, I am not don't want to be overly harsh on them, because if you go back 30 years, uh, there was another set of hall boys, me and my brother, who also used to spend a lot of time arguing about the rules, particular rules of playing cricket in the street, um, specifically LBW, which is very difficult to adjudicate on when there's only two of you playing, um, and one thinks it's out and the other one doesn't. Um, but then you can trace it back even further. I was joking with my dad about that sort of thing, and he was saying, well, if you go back another 30 years, there was another set of hall boys, him and his brothers, arguing that when they used to play cricket in their garden, if you hit it over the house, was that just a six or was it six and out? Um, and arguments used to go on uh, for ages. They agreed that if it broke the window, that was definitely out, um, which happened on more than one occasion, I think. So um, nothing's changed, certainly in my family. Over years, we'll find ways to argue about rules. And I don't think it's unique to uh, my family. Um, nothing's changed when we see these Ten Commandments. Because with these rules, some of the most famous rules in history, people have been arguing about these for centuries. Like, for example, how many commandments are there? Right? I've referred to them as the Ten Commandments over and over again. Um, but depending on how you count them, uh, people argue for anything between 8 and 13. Um, even the people who agree on 10, it's not in the same. So most Christian denominations would agree on 10. Um, it tends to be uh, Jewish interpreters do see maybe 8 or 13 there. Um, but the Catholic 10 and the Protestant 10 aren't the same 10. They number them slightly differently, depending on how you group them. Even if you get past the uh, numbers of which is which, then other arguments apply. Like, which one of these do, do they apply exactly to us uh, now as they did to, to the people who got them? Um, when it says, don't take the Lord's name in vain, what does that mean? Um, it says, don't make carved images. What exactly does that mean? Like, what, what, what's the problem with the images? They're not actually called commandments in the original language here. It's referred to as the ten words. What are the, the ten words? Because there's a lot more than ten words there. Um, and so there's loads of things here that people have just been arguing about the ins and outs of these specific rules um, for millennia. Now, I don't want to get into that sort of stuff. I've read a bit on it, and if you're interested in that sort of thing, uh, talk to me about it later, and I'll do my best to end the conversation as quickly as I can. Um, but, only joking, um, not really. Um, the, what I want really for us to do is to see like, what God is communicating to us. Like, it doesn't really bother me whether you think the coveting ones should be separated out or all grouped together. You want to call that one commandment if you want to call it two, if you want to call it three. That's, like, if we focus in our time on that, we're missing the point. And so what I want to do is we're going to read through this. Um, we've got a few comments about each of the commandments. And then I want to try and really draw our attention to three ways that I think we get the Ten Commandments wrong, and then the, the corresponding ways that we, we can get them right. So, um, let's read it. It's the, the first 21 verses of Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, 
above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony about your neighbour. You shall not cover your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So let's start by just whizzing through the commandments um, and just with a, a, a couple of comments on each just to help us understand what's going on here. Broadly speaking, the commandments sort of separate out into uh, ones that relate to God and ones that relate to other people. Um, they've traditionally been known as the two tables um, of the law. But as you understand, people argue about which go in which. So um, broadly speaking, we can separate um, out into relating to God and relating to others. And so we start off with, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the most fundamental command. Um, it's to recognise God in his proper position. Like, there's a song we sometimes sing where it says, none above you, none before you. Like, there's no one like him. Um, he's God, he's in his proper position. That's the first commandment, is to recognise that. Now, all the other commandments flow out of this one. Like, if you recognise God in his proper position, in your allegiances to him, then you're not going to worship other gods which will come unto, or you're not going to use God's name in vain, or you're not going to murder or steal. All the other commandments flow from this one. And that's why a number of people would group the sort of second and third commandments in, in with that one. They, they flow nicely from it. The second one being, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Broadly speaking, this is what we refer to as idolatry. Worship of things other than God. Now, I think that the issue is not so much the making of the images, although not everybody would agree with that. I think it's the worship of the images. So I would group that in with one commandment um, altogether as I've read it out there. It's the bowing down and worshipping these other things, these images, the, these other gods. In the days that God was writing that to them, that would have literally been a, a statue might be that today, but in our day it could be other things. It could be your own image. 
It could be other images, things that you uh, deem to be beautiful. Or it might be things like money or sex or power. It's other things that we are worshipping. That's the thing. We do not bow down to them or worship them. To worship something is to treat it as worthy of your time, worthy of your attention, worthy of your efforts, worthy of your money. We're commanded to worship God alone. Like the first commandment, there's no other gods before me. And the second one flows from that. We wouldn't be worshipping anything else. Now, I will just say that following this one, there are some sort of tricky concepts um, introduced uh, where it talks about God being a jealous God and it talks about uh, sort of generational punishment. Now, we don't have time to deal with them here, but please, if you want to ask me about them, I'm more than happy to have that conversation. I won't be trying to end that conversation early. Um, if you uh, want to have a chat about those, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about them. Um, but it, it would take too long to, to address here when we're trying to cover all the commandments. The third commandment, then, is also about honouring God. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And so I think the, um, an older translation, which is the commonly one, is don't use the, the name of the God, God in vain. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. That's tended to become associated with using Jesus' name as like a, a swear or curse word. Um, but it's far more than that. Like we misuse God's name or we take his name in vain when we claim the name of being a Christian but then live lives that don't show honour to him. That's dishonouring his name. That's taking his name in vain. Number four about the Sabbath day doesn't really fit quite neatly into the, the categories of loving God or loving others. But it's interesting that this one has the most words associated with it. It's, it's the longest one in terms of um, wordage. And it's interesting that the most words in this list of rules are about the command to rest. It's interesting that the one with the most words is probably the one that we take least seriously out of the um, Ten Commandments today. The rest of the commandments then um, flow out of those first four. If we're loving God, if we're worshipping God, if we're honouring him, then we'll also display that to others. And so uh, the remaining um, six commandments um, are about how we relate to others. I would say there's probably more general agreement with these ones um, in our society today. Um, somebody who's not Christian is unlikely to be saying that the most important commandment is that we should um, worship no other, no other God other than uh, the God of the Bible. But they probably do agree that murdering is, is not something that we want in our society. So these are the ones that tend to have a wider agreement but I would say in the logic of Exodus 20 and the way God gives these commands, these, uh, these flow out of the honouring of God. We love God and because of that, um, it's possible for us to truly love others. There's also no real long explanations to these ones. They're mainly just simple, straightforward statements. It starts off with honour your father and mother. Probably another commonly ignored commandment in the church today. We often don't really know what to do with it. Um, it's got a, a promise attached to it so that you may live long in the land your God is giving you. I don't think that that means if you honour your parents, you will live a long life. I don't think it's as straightforward as that. I think it's talking about um, the, the life of God's people in his land. But it starts with the, this loving of other people there starts with uh, the closest relationships to you um, and showing honour to your parents. And got, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony, which is broadly understood to include all types of, of lying. 
And then coveting. Coveting is a bit different to the others in this section. You shouldn't covet your neighbour's house or anything else that he's got. Um, the other ones are like mainly like provable offences, whereas this wouldn't necessarily be obvious to somebody else. Like we can hopefully prove whether somebody is murdered or stolen. We can't prove whether somebody has been coveting their neighbour's house or his ox or his donkey. Like we have laws in this country about murdering and stealing. We don't have anything about coveting. Like I wasn't like looking over my shoulder and listening for sirens as I was admiring Josh's car in the car park of Summerhill last week. Um, like we don't have laws against coveting and it's not clear exactly when it is and when it is happening. Now those are the 8 or 10 or 13 commandments and I would say I've just basically said a few things that came to mind as I went through them but I would encourage you to spend some time this week reading back through them, thinking about them, considering them. Is there one in particular that God's drawn attention, uh, your attention to? One in particular that's standing out to you? Um, if, while we haven't got the normal life group discussions going on, it'd be great if you were seeing other people from the church say, oh, actually I've been thinking about this commandment. I think, oh, I've never really um, thought about that, how that applies in, in my life or what, what, what it was that God brought to your attention from the Ten Commandments. But as I said, what I want to do is to try and focus, rather than the individual ones, just the commandments as a whole. And so I've got three things that I think we get wrong about the Ten Commandments. And this would probably apply to the individual ones, but I'm thinking about the commandments as a whole here. So three things we get wrong about the Ten Commandments. Number one, we get the order wrong. Now I'm not talking here about the order of like which one's commandment two, which one's commandment three. I'm saying we get the order wrong in terms of their place in the history of God's people, in the history of redemption. It's because we miss out verse 1. That's verse 2, sorry. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We miss out the verse before the commandments start. But that is absolutely essential for understanding what's going on with these commandments. God, the history of what's happened up to here is the people were slaves in Egypt and God has rescued them. He's brought them out. And then they've been sort of going through the wilderness. They've ended up in this mountain. And now he's given them uh, these commands. He's already brought them out of slavery. And now he's given them these instructions to help them understand what it means to live as his people. What this isn't is Moses turning up in Egypt where the people are enslaved and crying out to God for help. And Moses turned up and said, all right, God's given me a list. And if we can get this list done, then he's going to get us out. That is not how it works. They're already out of Egypt. They've already been rescued. I think it is impossible to overstate the importance of this point, or at least to, to, to me, this is extremely important to understand that God rescues first and then obedience to his commands comes after that. They're not things to do to earn God's rescue for the, for the Israelites or for us. God graciously rescues and then these commands show how we should live and respond to that rescue. We don't follow God's commands to earn our salvation. He saves us first. The obedience flows out of that. He doesn't save us because we are obedient. In Romans it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You, you don't need to sort your life out and get yourself like, you know, just improve yourself a bit before you can come to Jesus. Our obedience to God's command is a response to what God does in saving us. It's not a condition of it. It doesn't earn it. This is, the reason why I think it's so important is because I think this is the biggest misunderstanding 
of Christianity in our culture. So I'm part of a, um, a book club that, that Scott set up um, a few years ago, and um, we're currently reading a book called Lessons in Chemistry, which is a novel um, set in sort of 1950s, 1960s America about um, a female chemist. Um, it, it was a big seller, I think, last year. It's going to be a TV show coming out later this year. Um, and the main character is an atheist, and that is extremely unpopular in the time she's living. I'm not giving away any spoilers here, by the way, um, just in case you read it. Um, and as I was reading it, I was initially really frustrated with the sort of depiction of um, Christian characters um, in this book. Because I just thought, oh, it's the worst like stereotype of what um, Christians are like. Um, you've got people who, you know, because this person has admitted publicly that she doesn't believe in God, are protesting and sending a hate mail and just being terrible to her because she said she didn't believe in God. You've got people who sort of doubt God's existence but don't dare open, like don't dare be open about that and just sort of uh, try and create a, a, an image that's sort of faithful um, and a, a well-behaved Christian. You've got people who, well, it sort of pits faith against evidence and people who are just saying, oh, you've got to have faith and just ignoring um, the, the need for any sort of evidence. You've got people who are really big on the sort of Ten Commandments type of stuff but with no real reason other than just like, oh, that's what you should do. And so as I was reading that, I found that quite frustrating. Uh, but then I was thinking, well, actually, the reason why these sort of like tropes of, of Christians uh, turn up so often is because there are a lot of people who that, that is their experience. There are a lot of people who've met Christians and that's what they have experienced. There are a lot of people who think that that's what it is to be a Christian. Believe in God, maybe despite the evidence, I'm just going to believe in God and, and try and hold me doubts up there, and then I live by the Ten Commandments, and maybe I shout a bit at people who don't follow the Ten Commandments, and that's what it means to be a Christian. It's a total misunderstanding of what Christianity is. And our, our understanding of how these commandments work in the lives of the um, Israelites, but also in our lives, is sort of fundamental to that. If you're not here today as a Christian, then I want you to please make sure you know what Christianity actually is so that you can make an informed decision. And for those of us who are Christians, this attitude is so prevalent that sees like our obedience to these commands or others as the thing that gets us in God's good books or earns us God's favour. That attitude is so prevalent that it's easy to slip back into it. All religions and non-religious worldviews all have their own versions of these commandments. I saw that uh, Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist, has his sort of endorsed Ten Commandments um, for, like, I don't know, for what it means to be a, a good person. There's loads of the humanist society have their commandments that say what it means to be a good human being. And there's also something that seems a lot like Christianity, sounds a lot like Christianity, that isn't that is exactly the same thing. So this is what it means to be a good... This is what you need to do. If you can follow um, these laws, then you'll be a good person. All of those worldviews see these commandments or others like them as rungs on the ladder to sort of climb your way up to a better place. The Bible says there's no way we can climb up. Like, literally, these people are at a mountain where there's thunder and lightning going off and they're being told, if you come near the mountain, you're going to die. 
the Bible says no way we can climb up that mountain. It would be the same as like chucking an ice cube into a volcano. Like you just disappear. The people then couldn't get themselves out of slavery in Egypt. There was nothing they could do. God sent Moses to them and brought them out of slavery. For us, God sends Jesus. He gets us out. We haven't climbed our way up to him. He's climbed down into the pit with us and he's pulled us out. He forgives our sins. He clothes us in his righteousness. Not because of anything we've done in relation to these commands or any others, but because of his grace. Then, these commandments describe how we live in response to that. It shows how to live in a relationship with a God who has already rescued us from slavery. You think. Now, it may be that you think, well, how is that? Like, that's just the same thing. Like, you put, take them out of slavery and then you put them into another type of slavery. I think that totally misunderstands what these are about. What the people are doing here, and Scott was talking about this last week, they're entering into a covenant. It's like marriage. Um, so when I got married to Lisa, we making certain promises. There's certain, uh, you don't refer to them as commandments, but there's things there like you wouldn't commit adultery. Now, is that a rule for the marriage? Well, yes, it is. Am, am I thinking, well, that's put me into some sort of slavery? No, we entered into that. We wanted to make that commitment. And that's what's happening here. This is God and his people coming together um, in a marriage sort of relationship. The, those commandments are a gift from God to enter into life with him. So, the most important verse, I think, for understanding the Ten Commandments is that verse before the start, that they've already been rescued. And I think it helps us to understand a question that commonly comes up about these sort of things, any laws really in the Bible. Do these commandments apply to us today? Do the Ten Commandments apply to us today? Should we be following them? Well, the answer is sort of no and yes. No in terms of earning anything from God. No in terms of we don't need to follow these for God to... Uh, save us um, or to act in our life. But yes, they do apply to us in terms of the shows what an obedient response to that grace looks like. It shows us what a life with God looks like. And so that's the first thing that I think we get wrong about the Ten Commandments, is we get the order wrong. Like the commandments come after salvation. They don't earn us our salvation, they respond to it. Secondly, um, the other two are shorter. Um, secondly, I think we get the point wrong. We miss the points. We make a big mistake where we treat these laws and others in the Bible as like a list of rules and we're trying to work out oh, this one and have I kept this one. Like We're treating them as just sort of a random selection of rules. And we see them as items on a checklist and try and do as many as we can. Or maybe we take a legalistic approach and think, well, I've never technically stolen anything, so that's all right. I'm by the letter of the law, I'm okay. Or maybe we assign different levels of importance. Like, I think I'm really good at keeping this one, so I'll think that that's really important. And this one that I struggle with, I'll be less interested in. It's not uncommon to talk about the idea of everybody being sinful and be met with the response, well, I've never murdered somebody, which, as Ben has said before, is a pretty low bar to be setting. But also, it totally misses the point. And Jesus points this out when he talks about God's law. He does it in a number of ways, but he talks about the Sabbath. At the time of Jesus, he gets a load of criticism for doing things on the Sabbath because the Jews at that time had a complex system of what was and wasn't allowed to be done on the Sabbath day. And Jesus is pointing out that's totally missing the point. 
it's a day in honour to God. It's not a day to be obsessed with tiny regulations about what is and what isn't work. He says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He also does it with some of the Ten Commandments, like adultery, like murder, where he says, like, it's not just have you technically committed adultery. Like, if you've looked at somebody lustfully, then you've committed adultery in your heart. It's not just about have you taken somebody's life. If you've been angry with somebody in your heart, it's the same principle. That should show us, the way that Jesus deals with them, should show us that they're not like a list of rules in the way that we normally think about rules. The principles about how we relate to God and others, they show what God is like. And when his people live like this, that demonstrates what God is like to um, other people who don't know him. They're not a random list of things that God thinks are particularly important. They're in the description of what he's like and they're an invitation into the good life with him. Like They're not a burden. They're an invitation into the life we were designed for, a life where we'll flourish. Like Imagine a world where there's no murder. Like it's just, like, just in the news this week, that Lucy Lefty case, a horrendous um, story. Just imagine a world where there's no murder. but not even like the, the intense ones like that. Imagine a world where you weren't just driven by wanting the stuff that your neighbour's got or looking around and be dis- dissatisfied with what God's given you because you think that what somebody else is doing is better. Imagine a world where you're free from that. Imagine a world with a perfect balance of meaningful work and rest. That's a world where God is at the top, where he's in his rightful place. He's honoured, he's glorified, so that everything else falls into its proper place and we can enjoy all his good gifts without turning them into idols and sucking the life out of them. So I think we get the order wrong. Like God saves us and needs a response. We don't earn anything from God with these. We also get the point wrong. It's not a list of arbitrary rules to be followed, but it's an invitation into a good life with God. And then thirdly, I think we get the response wrong. So the sort of responses we have is we might have self Righteous response. I've always, I've always followed these. My grandma told me these were important. I've always followed these. That sort of thing. Or I, we look at the list now and think, oh, I'm doing pretty well on that list. And you get like six out of ten or whatever it might be. Or you might be thinking, well, at least I'm doing better than him. I wasn't pointing at Ian for any particular reason there. Just where my hand went. Um, we might have a self-righteous response like that. Or at the other end of the spectrum, um, we might have a sort of response of despair. Like, I'm terrible at this list. I look at this list and I think, oh, I'm doing absolutely rubbish. What's the point? I'm, I'm going to give up. Well, I think the people's response to this and then what Moses says to them um, is helpful. So in verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance. I don't know why that's suddenly changed. They stayed at... It's number eight, Jen. <laughs> they stayed at a distance um, and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us or we will die. They're terrified of hearing um, from God here. Moses says to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep from sinning. What's going on with fear there? Because Moses is saying, Don't be afraid. But then he says, but the, So that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And I think that while this is initially confusing, it helps us to understand a healthy response to God's commandments. The fear of God that Moses is talking about 
that, that, that he wants them to have is not terror, it's not being afraid, it's not being terrified of God in the way that they were. They were like terrified that, that they don't want to go anywhere near this mountain where God is. The fear of God there is um, a reverent, correct understanding of his proper place. It's the first few commandments, recognising that there's no other God but God and treating him with the appropriate honour and respect. It's a correct understanding of his holiness and our lack of holiness. And so these commandments act as a warning that shows our sin, that shows about the, the difference between us and God and how far we've fallen short. In Galatians 3 verse 24, it describes um, the law in general, God's law, as a teacher or a tutor that brings us to Christ. God's law holds up a mirror to our sin. It destroys our pride. It destroys self-righteousness. But then it shouldn't, so it shouldn't have us thinking, oh, I'm doing better than this person. But then it shouldn't leave us in despair because it points us to Jesus. He's the only person who's ever kept the Ten Commandments, not just in their letter, but in the true principle of them. And then on the cross, our failure was exchanged for his success. So the correct fear of God that Moses is talking about, he's saying, don't be afraid. You don't need to be terrified thinking, oh, I'm going to be destroyed. The right fear of God sees our sin, but then we don't need to be terrified because that sin has been dealt with. That's still not the end of the story. It's clear that the goal here, what Moses is saying, that the goal is for them to not just continue in sin, as before. And that's the same for us. We've been forgiven for all our sin, including those that we've yet, yet to commit. But we're also empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey God. Yes, we'll sin, but we can also obey. And the Holy Spirit lives within us and is at work in us to make us increasingly more like Jesus. So I think we get the order of the commandments wrong. Like God saves us first and this is our response. We get the point wrong when we see them as just like a random list of rules to obey. and miss the invitation into the good life with God. And we get the response wrong. We shouldn't be filled with self-righteousness. We shouldn't be filled with despair. But we should have a recognition, a recognition of our sin, a reliance on Jesus, and a life of growth in Holy Spirit-empowered uh, empowered obedience. Now, it meant, Moses mentions there, he says, God has come to test you. It's an interesting thing to say. Over the last couple of weeks, um, many students have been receiving A-level and GCSE exam results. Like the main question for many people being, have you passed or have you failed? Like you've had a test, you sat the test a few months ago, now you're getting the, the results, have you passed or have you failed? So when we look at the Ten Commandments, if we're saying, have we failed or have we passed? Well, I would say the answer is, congratulations, we've all failed and we've passed. We fail, It's like we've failed all our exams, but there's somebody who's passed everything and he's like signing his name over the top of yours, exchanging his results with you. In Romans chapter 3, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what I'm saying, we've all failed. But then it goes straight on to say, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We've all failed, but we've all passed because he passed and he gives that to us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Moses says here, God has come to test you. It's not really the way that we think of test. Like it doesn't really, it, the, the original word there is not like the sort of test I've just described like an exam. 
God hasn't come to them or to us to see, like, can we pass or can we fail? Because he knows we've failed and he knows that Jesus is going to pass on our behalf. The word user's test there can also be translated as an experience. Their experience with God here will be the foundation of their obedience. Not their own willpower. The same is true for us. It starts with us coming to God through Jesus and there's no prerequisites of behaviour for that. And then that, that experience of God, that knowledge of God, that encounter with God, that salvation, rescue by God, then fuels a response of obedience. Without God's grace, the law, like this, creates demands that will just work and work and never fulfil. But God's grace transforms this law into an invitation to obedience and then gives us the power to obey. That's why the psalmist can say, I delight in meditating on God's laws. And I think I've used this little poem before by uh, John Bunyan, but I think it just this is where I'm going to finish because it just sums up what I'm saying there. That without... Without grace, the law is just like a massive burden. It works like a treadmill. You just go on and go on and you never get to the end of it. Whereas with God's grace, it changes it into something different. And the poem was this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let's pray.